Hello and welcome back to series three of Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name's Ollie Henderson and this is the third series of this podcast. It's come around really quickly actually, partly because series two was a pod storm which took place every day throughout January. So I'm returning now to the original format of the show, long form interviews with a wide range of interesting guests from various backgrounds, each of whom has a unique take on the various areas that are going to contribute towards the changes in the future of work and how that intersects with our personal lives. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to be speaking to people like Annie Auerbach, the author of Flex. I'm going to be talking to Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy and the author most recently of a book called Alchemy, as well as the likes of Alex Hutchinson, who wrote a book called Endure, which discusses the limits of human potential. So on to today's show... My guest in this first episode of Series 3 is Elvin Turner. Elvin is an award-winning innovation expert. He's a professor of innovation and entrepreneurship. And he's worked with some of the world's most innovative organizations in a variety of industries, including finance, tech, music, drinks, and publishing. He also coaches many corporate leaders. His book is called Be Less Zombie, How Great Organizations Create Dynamic Innovation fearless leadership and passion of people. And we talked about the importance of innovation to all businesses who are reacting to these fundamental changes which are going on around us right now, and also how that relates to our work lives. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. So Elvin, thanks very much for joining me today. I thought we'd get straight into it with a question. I'm interested in your view on whether the ability to be innovative is something you're born with or whether you can learn it. <laughs> well, for me, it's all in how you define innovation. And for me, innovation is turning ideas into value. And at a corporate level, it's the continuous pursuit of profitable relevance. And re- relevance is, is is the key there. So if, you, if you're only thinking about innovation as the... the the exercise of coming up with creative ideas that's quite narrow and and often i it's quite common for me to go into an organization and for people to tell me well i'm not i'm not creative there's no point in me being involved in this innovation program and the reality is for an idea to be born and then turn into action requires a lot of different skill sets you need people who can refine ideas who can find why an idea is going to go wrong people who can scale ideas you you need a whole skill set to turn an idea into action and and sometimes we polarize innovation around the creativity side of things right up front where we're trying to find out the the, the big spark the new idea and i think some people have a natural ability to come up with bigger ideas more than others but i think even that is a bit of a red herring because All of the research these days is showing that because of the complexity of the world and the speed at which things are changing, the biggest ideas are born at the crossroads of different capabilities and disciplines all coming together rather than this idea of the lone genius. You know, Brian Eno came up with this phrase, the seniors. It's a group of people, a group of a collective of people who are working on an idea together and they're incrementally coming up with a breakthrough if you like so i think anybody can be involved in innovation and contribute something very important is is the way that i prefer to prefer to talk about it yeah and to, to follow on from that is there a process that you can follow to develop an innovation culture within an organization 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's one of the things that I, I get asked about the most because culture feels so intangible. It, it's hard to grapple with and, and do something about. And just zooming out from that, you know, there's a there's a definition of culture by a guy, a philosopher in the 1960s who said, culture is ordinary. The things that go on around us every day, the things that drive our values, our motivations, our behaviours, it's how we get things done around here. That's that's ordinary. The trouble is inside most organisations is they want extraordinary ideas to emerge from that ordinary context. And so I think it's really important to recognise two things. The first is when I go inside an organisation and, and I'm told by a leader or a manager that our innovation is broken here, it's not working. I, I generally know that that isn't true because if I ask them to point to anything new that's happened in the last week, month, year, there are tons of things going on. Innovation is going on all the time, but it's at an incremental level. It's the stuff that is just in, improving what we do by 1%, 5%. It's continuous improvement. That's innovation at a level. The, the starvation, if you like, what's going on inside many organisations is an executive opening the big idea cupboard and finding it empty and knowing that it's the bigger ideas, the bolder ideas, the more transformational ideas that are the ones that are going to dig deeper wells of competitive advantage for us in the future. And they are scarce commodities inside organisations. Mm. So I like to differentiate on the culture, the culture conversation between the culture that we need for the day-to-day, -day, the status quo, the turning the handle, the executing excellently so that we're making money. But that culture doesn't do well in pursuit of bigger, bolder ideas. And you need to separate out that pursuit generally into different teams. There's all sorts of different ways you can structure it. But you need to calibrate the culture according to the, con the context and the outcome that you're in pursuit of. So if we're looking for bigger and bolder ideas you need to expect in an exploration space there to be the, the pursuit of excellent learning at speed. We're trying to figure out whether stuff actually makes sense. We're trying to understand the problem space before we move into solution. We're trying to understand whether the idea that we are putting out in front of customers works from all kinds of different perspectives before we try and scale it. And that, that pursuit is full of failure because we can't perfectly predict the future and we're kidding ourselves if we think we can mm. so the, the the key for me in all of this is work back from the outcome that you need to deliver and then figure out what are the ways of working that we need and therefore what do we need to put in place what metrics measures around people and process so that the best possible work in pursuit of that outcome can happen so in the exploration space it's experimentation, it's testing, it's learning, and people need to feel safe to be able to try things that are probably going to fail. So I'm interested in the breakdown that you gave there around innovation within a larger organisation. Mm. How does the approach to innovation differ when you're in a small business, which is inherently more agile compared to a larger, more mature business? Yeah. Well, I don't know how different it, it's horses for courses because you can have a startup that's really slow and awful and bad, bad processes. And you've recruited people who are from the corporate world who only know that world. So mm. I, I'm not sure that scale and age of company necessarily have a direct correlation. It's, I guess for me, it's more about the mindset of the leaders who are setting the culture and defining the progress and how far they want to push. Are we doing something disruptive or are we a startup 
in a space where there's still a ton of capacity in the market that just needs to be mopped up. And we're following on from another, you know, many other organizations have gone before us. We're just joining the market because there's still space in there for us. In my book, I talk about zombie organizations. The ones that are sort of lurching forward, looking for their next meal, the living dead, running out of time, running out of road. I think, again, it, it comes back to what's the outcome we're pursuing. And, and it has to be, for me, this bifocal approach, which is keep making the money, keep bringing in the business today. Don't allow innovation to trip that up and crunch the gears. But equally, don't expect big ideas to show up in that context. And what the, the luxury that a startup has in some respects is doesn't matter if things go wrong they've got nothing to lose that and if this doesn't work they're dead so they can afford to bend some rules uh, you know step outside policies that corporates would normally have so they have more flexibility and more freedom but they're still trying to find ways to stay alive yeah. they, they could be dead in a year and so that hunger will often drive behaviors and pursuits that aren't necessarily motivated inside the corporate context, which for me is why it's so important that you separate that out inside the corporate world. And it's one of the biggest sources of frustration that I see at an executive level is the big ideas aren't showing up in the day to day. We're telling people they have permission to go and do it and we've got all resources and yeah. yeah, but I'm already working at 120%. And if I put my hand up for an innovation task, that's an, a new night job that, to add to the one that I've already got. And yeah. there's all sorts of reasons fighting against uh, the, the desire to, to... It's not that people don't want to do it. Often I find that the innovation is some of the most motivating work. People can't wait to do it, but they know there's always going to be a cost if they've got the day job to go back to. Is innovation stifled by an inherent reluctance to take risks and and are people rewarded more for sticking to the status quo rather than putting themselves out there yeah for me this is all about you get what you measure for and most people are measured for delivering flawlessly executing against short-term objectives and there's nothing wrong with that because that's how businesses stay alive and make money certainly in the short term the, the trouble is, I, I think you're absolutely right. There are two or three factors that cause people to shrink back. And I, I call it corporate constipation because people are looking for ideas. Leaders are asking for ideas, but people are holding back, I often find, because there's, there's tons of good ideas out there. They're just they're not being released. And the reason for that is two or threefold. The first is the stakes are too high. For me to take a step towards this idea even get it out on the table and propose it in a brainstorm you know that you're going to be given that job to to pick it up and if it's slightly beyond what we do today there's a higher chance that it's going to fail and who wants failure on their cv all sorts of reasons why you don't want to fail the second reason which we alluded to earlier is the time we, we don't create time for people to innovate really beyond the, the operational efficiency stuff if I don't have the time, I'm going to be told this is a stretch assignment. This is going to help me get to the next level. It's, it's no, it's not. It's going to wear you out. You're going to get ground down. You're not going to get the support that you need. At least that's the story you're going to be telling yourself. So it's another reason to step back from it. So for me there. And then, of course, if you put an idea on the table, the, the thing that you think the managers are asking for and the thing they think they're asking for when they then start to think through the implications of what it would take to get that up the hierarchy and get the sign off, 
it's really is that really worth the effort it's because we all know what's going to happen it's going to get watered down it'll get put on the, the back burner whenever there's a fire landing on our desks and it will never really happen because we've seen it happen before so these stories and myths and legends that have come from the past massively influence i think our appetite to want to step forward into innovation but there is some reality around that as well and so my my biggest recommendation to to companies other than resource it properly separate out the the pursuit of bolder ideas is to lower the stakes mm. make it easier to take the first step towards something where if it does go wrong which it probably will if it's a, an idea that we've never tried before or at least be wrong to some extent then i'm not going to get fired i'm not going to get penalized and that's for me is the beauty of experimental approaches to innovation dream big start small what's the smallest possible test we could run to determine whether this idea should even get to base one it's the difference between spending 50 grand on a pilot um, prototype and 50 quid running a tiny test to learn something yeah that we would be foolish to spend a ton of money on only to learn the same thing yeah I, I read an article a few weeks ago when it's talking about New Year's resolutions and there's the, the buzzword seems to be about intentionality at the moment, being intentional with your choices and your habits. Yeah. It feels to me like you're sort of describing a situation where those that get it right are intentional in the way in which they innovate. And I'm talking here about time, actually. So I'm, I am obsessed with time and the lack of it. I see very little evidence within a lot of organisations that they are intentional in allowing people the time for innovation. So I, I read in your book, that there's various steps towards becoming an innovative culture. And one of those things is being intentional towards innovation. Yeah, I mean, when I'm running leadership development workshops around this whole topic, I'll often ask, what do you think is the number one thing that differentiates the companies that innovate well and that you read about all of the time, that, you know, the, the, the Disney's, the Pixar's, the Google's, and those that are kind of in everybody else, the mere mortal status. And for me, the answer is they choose. They decide that innovation isn't an option. We don't necessarily know how to do it well. We'll have to learn how to do that. They're taking responsibility for their future and not allowing themselves to put the excuse up around, well, we've tried that before. It's too hard. It's black box. It's smoke and mirrors. It is, you know, it's for those few companies that just have the spark. That's cobblers. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's a choice to pursue a performance state that will probably demand that you are continually learning about how to be the right organization. Not just what you make, but how you go to market, how you do that stuff. And usually we have a dating mentality to innovation. We do a campaign here and there. We're going to appoint an innovation director and they're out within a year because the system isn't set up to support them well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we need to move from that dating mentality to it's a commitment. It's always on. We have no choice but to do this. And our responsibility of leaders to be good stewards of the present and the future is to bite the bullet and decide we're going to learn how to do this really well. And we'll probably go through a year or two of learning some lessons about how not to do it. But we'll come out the other side with a superpower that most companies are not prepared to invest in. And we will benefit from that. And you only need to look back through history to look at the innovative companies who have really invested in that. And they've survived multiple um, industry shifts to, to show that this makes sense. But it's it's hard to get started and do it well. Yeah. What role does do outcomes play in that? 
and understanding what the desired outcome should be? Well, for me, it's it's the beginning and end of it, really. It's looking at who do we need to become? So who's who? what is the future state of our organisation that we want to inherit? And looking at the weak signals from the future, the trends that are coming that might either multiply that and amplify it or actually cause some big problems for us. And dealing with that messy ambiguity of, okay, well, if that's the future that's coming towards us and the one that we want to inherit, what should we start doing now to test different future scenarios so that when they start to show up, we're ready to move? And that, for me, is deeply, well, it's about having a vision of the future for the organisation and what would need to be true for us to show up commercially healthy. But the dependency on that is often a deep understand a deeper understanding i think that most companies have of what their customers really want and if you apply there's some some great tools out there now there's a methodology that i love called jobs to be done which helps you determine what is the most important progress that you are helping customers make in their lives we're not looking at products we're not looking at services we're looking at what they enable and why that matters and there's some really neat tools for prioritizing, understanding and mapping what those things are. And what, what you see over history is that, so the music industry is a great example. If, my, if the job I'm trying to get done, if the progress I'm trying to make as a, a consumer of music is to manage and to have access to my music whenever I want. If you look over the history of technology in the music industry, go back a hundred years, you've got these big, dirty smelly wax cylinders that are churning out music on a very you know one at a time it's tricky stuff then we've got vinyl okay that that's easier to manage that's easier to, to move around then then cassette and eight track and, and then we're on to cd and on now on to streaming the the progress that i've wanted through history really hasn't changed very much but the technologies have shifted seven or eight times and guess what most companies didn't make the shift and so you look at companies like Netflix, they're asking a very different question or, or they're posing a de very different approach to how they think about the future. It's not how can we stream better movies? It's how do we help people find the best movies? There's no implication of technology or product there because they know in five, 10 years time, it won't be about streaming. It'll be about something else or there'll be something beginning. They're more interested in solving the progress problem than they are about only focusing on technology you need both but usually we're so product centric in our innovation and strategy that we miss the the why of what we're doing and we find ourselves you know at the wrong end of a, of an industry shift and unable to, to to claw our way back yeah you you mentioned jobs to be done there uh, clay christensen's theory and you like me share a love of uh management theory and there's lots of amazing frameworks in the, in the book what was really positive about your book which is in contrast i must be honest with some others which are too theoretical is actually some practical applications of those frameworks i thought we could just run through a quick scenario maybe just to give, to give an indication to people listening about how you might approach a innovation process and of course i know this varies massively for, for different organizations mm. but i'll set a scene for you let's say we're a company of 50 people We've worked in, in the same industry for six, seven years. We understand the shifts in the market and we know we need to do something about it, but we just don't know how to start that process. Where would you start? Would you start with a, a classic jobs to be done framework and try and identify that? Would you use something brilliant like Alex Osterwalder's business model generator? What sort of approach would you take for, for that challenge? 
I think the most important thing is to understand, as you said, what's the outcome that we're looking to achieve three, five years from now? And then ask the question, what needs to be true in order for us to be able to deliver that? And there's, so the, the first stage that I, I find really helpful to, to run a workshop is paint a picture of five, 10 years time, determine what, what you believe that needs to be commercially, what our customers are going to need, and then ask that question, what would need to be true in order for us to achieve that one year before that 10 years, so in nine, year, nine years time. And for us to hit that, what would need to be true in eight years time? And working yourself back to increments allows you to draw a line of sight between things that we're gonna to need to do in the next year, 18 months, to put us on a trajectory, as far as we know, as best as we can tell, that would allow us to get to that 10 year goal. Now, taking into consideration that things move very fast, you need to hold that picture quite loosely and always be looking to change it and be have a little bit more of an emergent approach to strategy so that think you know as things move as new data comes in and we realize actually that picture is not now going to come true it now looks more like this that we're able to able to move now that process you can never fill in every box because what you you're you're looking at is you know, for, for every year you're looking at what resources might we need, what capabilities might we need, what partnerships might we need. But it starts to build for you a picture of the capability, the strategy that we're going to need to employ that you can then start to turn into an action plan. And, and that's often the difficulty is turning that theory into practical action. What that also allows you to do, though, is to start to think about not just from the product perspective, what we're going to need to be do, to do, but also what people are going, what people do we not currently have that we're going to need in order to be able to do that stuff. How are we going to need to think differently about how we resource this stuff so that it can show up? So there's a strategic play. Some of that will have customer insight in there. But then underneath that, I think you're right. I mean, you've picked out a couple of good tools there. Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas is a really great tool for mapping what are the seven, eight, nine components of a business model that would need to show up in order for us to deliver that 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 future. So for me, I there's only a couple that I like to use up front. It's really around, well, actually, if there's another one I could add, it would be scenario planning, which I know has been talked about a lot, but I still don't find many companies that do it well, which again is, is taking that future view and saying, okay, so what would that need to look like in real workable scenarios? And one of the benefits of that, there's lots of different ways that you can cut those, but one of the benefits of that is you, it's really great for engaging employees inside the organization for the future that we're pursuing, which helps them to understand why we're investing in some of the things that often we, we don't join the dots on. So you have this innovation team working on something and a lot of people are dismissive of what they're doing and why they're doing it because there's no link to any real commercial future. So um, working back from the future, designing scenarios, business model generation and and all of that to say what we're really doing there is putting out there some assumptions because we can't really predict the future but i mean who, who could have predicted the last year 18 months but it, it gives us something that we can then go and test against and develop products and services against rather than continually turning the handle today only working on incremental changes and we know at some point we will reach the top of the s curve and it's going to crash our ability to fill the portfolio with things from the future using those other tools is going to be something that from an innovation perspective is really important.
I'm interested to hear a little bit about your background. You said earlier in the book that you had 10 years of thinking that went into it. What are the defining aspects of your work in preceding the book, which led you, first of all, to want to write it, but also influenced the way that you thought about innovation? Well, it came from a likely starting point, really. So my first job out of university was I, I was a, a speechwriter, a scriptwriter, and I ended up doing quite a lot of stuff for senior execs. <laughs> Looking back, I was so unqualified to do this, but it, it, it kind of worked. I was writing like conference speeches and, and things like that and ghostwriting articles for senior execs in tech companies, actually, mostly, and then did some stuff for politicians as well. And it really opened my eyes very early to the realities of the corporate world because I would naively <laughs> go and say, you know present a, a proposed script that they should deliver at this conference that was talking about bold futures and things that I thought would excite people and turn people on. And it would get red lines all the way through it because it wasn't dealing in reality. And I was thinking, yeah, but all of the research reports that you're asking me to base this all on are all saying that's what it's going to look like. No one wanted to commit to anything that was anything beyond incremental improvement so early on it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there's a lot of storytelling going on here that doesn't bear out in real life and and surely there's a consequence and I I, I moved in then to management consultancy working in change and leadership and then finally into innovation and started to see more of the mechanics and the realities and some of the tools that can help organizations make the kind of progress that they know they want to make but find really difficult so I then ran a, the innovation arm of a, a consultancy called DPA for about seven or eight years. And then last five years, I've, I've been working for myself. I, I lecture on MBA programs as well for innovation and entrepreneurship and starting to do more writing. But in the midst of all that, probably 10 years ago, I, I, I threw my hat in the ring for a, into a startup, failed miserably, learnt loads, really good for me, great experience. I recommend it for everybody. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I mean, quite quite a mixed journey, really. Yeah obviously you're aware of my interest in the kind of changing relationship between work and life can we learn from some of these innovation ideas some of these business frameworks and apply that to the way we think about our time yeah i i think so i mean prioritization for me is a superpower the people that do it well and the companies that do it well pays dividends so i think there's a ton of stuff out there already you know atomic habits around how to form great habits and and all of that stuff for prioritizing time and things like that I, I it's funny you mention it because i've only been thinking recently about how broadly some of this stuff can apply and for me one of the things and then this isn't solely about time but it's what do we want to spend the time doing because we all say we're too busy we want to do less and then we create capacity, but then we tend to fill it with all the stuff we said we didn't want any more of because we don't always know how to fill the time in ways that fulfill the stuff that we really want to do yeah. because that often involves change. And one of the things that I found, again, this is coaching in the corporate context, but quite what often happens in the coaching conversations is it moves very personal very quickly. And I meet a lot of people at a fairly senior level who are unsurprisingly they're burnt out they're frustrated they're starting to look at the dreams they had 20 years ago and realizing this stuff's never going to happen unless something changes soon it's a kind of classic midlife crisis stuff and sometimes it's this there's almost a blind spot around the fact that they have more control over the their lives than they think and what they haven't done is invite other options into their life because they've said well i can never do that because and there is that 
gate that's slammed shut in front of them that they believe is never going to open unless some miracle happens. And there is, you know, some exercises that we do around walking around, looking at things from different perspectives, inviting different perspectives in that allow people then the freedom to say, actually, yes, <laughs> I have got more control here over my energy, over the choices that I make, starting to invest that time into like me. I'm finally in my late 40s getting around to learning the piano, which I've always wanted to do. It's a silly example, but I've never... I've I've always set the bar too high. Yeah. And someone said to me once, just do 15 minutes a day. You know, you're not going to be Beethoven in 15 minutes a day, but in a year, you'll be able to play the stuff that you want to play. 15 minutes a day. I can do 15 minutes a day. I just have to choose to put it in my diary. So mm. if I hadn't had someone say that, I, I hadn't thought of that option. So for me, some of, the, some of it is we're so used to, the sound of our own voice, giving ourselves advice on why we can and can't do things, just being teachable and open to allow someone else to speak into it, I, I think is really, really helpful. Yeah, I'm wondering actually whether we can take advantage of constraints in some way, whether constraints can feed into good innovation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's well established that putting crea putting constraints around the creative process actually amplifies the creativity. Because if you're asked, come up with new ideas for cars versus come up with new ideas for tyres for cars that create 10% more fuel efficiency, you, you're going to go down into a more specific area, but you're also forced, forced into imagining outcomes that, that, that cause some kind of a, a creative explosion in your brain that doesn't happen otherwise. And one of the things I always recommend for, for brainstorms is understand the outcomes you want and then design brilliant questions. I call them catalytic questions mm. that force people to think in a very focused, constrained way, but then allow them to come up with a ton of different ideas. And, you know, in any, any brainstorm, you're trying to get the right balance between something that's original and useful. And often we want more originality. And so I often will encourage people to put tight boundaries around the question they're asking because it just forces you to, to do it. It's like entrepreneurship. I used to run this exercise where people have got two hours to make as much money as they can doing anything they want, but there's no budget. Right. Amazing the stuff that people come up with under that constraint. Whereas you said, if you said, here's, here's a thousand pounds, go and make 5,000 pounds somehow that lack of constraint has an impact on, on creativity. So I'd say, yes, definitely it, it does it does have an impact. But I would also say one of the things that I've observed, which you know I wouldn't wish COVID on any era of history, but I suppose I'm, I'm banging my own drum here a little bit. I, I get so frustrated when I go into organisations and they tell me that they can't innovate. Well, just look what's happened when you have to innovate which demonstrates it is a choice. So I, I think there are benefits to having constraint around creativity. I think there should definitely be constraints around the early stage of ideas. You don't want to be throwing lots of money at new ideas. You actually want to encourage, I believe, the entrepreneurial spark in people that requires a bit of hustle. What can we, what can we borrow here? Who can, who can we bring in to help with this before we scale something and, and, and throw resources at, at an issue that we don't fully understand? So... I think constraint thinking at, at smart points of the process is it's it's a real amplifier. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I just wanted to follow up on something you said before, and sorry if it brings back uh, some, some bad memories, but I'm interested from a point of view of advice. So you said you had to go at a startup. Mm. Based on what you learn, what advice would you give yourself prior to that startup right now? Well, I, I fell into the classic trap that just because people told me they would buy something, that they would actually then buy it if I made it. So I, right. I came up with this idea. It was... Uh, if you combine back in the day Skype and Amazon you want to tell stories to your kids while you're away with work you're not necessarily in the right time zone you go into this bookstore you pick a book comes up on the screen in front of you activates your webcam and your microphone you read the story it turns the pages you say a little good good night message to to the kids it wraps it all up sends it a link home click on the link bedtime story from dad and uh, I had 300 people tell me, if you make that, I will buy it because it solves such a problem in my life. I thought, great. For two or three years, as a second job in the evenings, I was working with a small development team with that. And again, on paper, it made sense. I launched it. One person out of sympathy <laughs> came to use it. And... Uh, you know, lots of lessons I learned around, you know, probably needed a bit more resource. It needed a different team, all, all sorts of things. Yeah. I was trying to do it really on a shoestring. I should have I should have probably given away some equity and, and brought in some, some more help. But it really taught me about the, the whole lesson around testing a value proposition before yeah. you turn it into a product. Yeah, it's I mean, nowadays, it's, you know, the idea of, you know, Facebook ads, click on the link and it takes you nowhere. You know, now someone was testing to see whether that is an idea that, that, that actually anyone cares about that. Yeah. That wasn't around in those days, but it was a good lesson. It was a painful lesson, but um, I still and I, I see it everywhere now. Whenever I see a new ad for a new product or I, I'm talking to someone about a new idea, it's the first thing that goes through my mind. So, uh, yeah, lessons learned. And I. I yeah, probably the less said, the better. Still still bear the scars. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I don't want to make it worse, but it wouldn't be much good at the moment either, would it, given everyone's at home all the time? But... See, this is the thing. I was thinking, yeah, great for mums and dads, but what, I've got a brother who lives in America who never sees his niece and yeah, nephew. True, I've got grandparents true. who yeah. the Isle of Wight. It could open up. Don't get me started on yeah. it because I'll, I'll start about, believing. Uh, well, do you know what, Elvin? If you, make that, <laughs> if you make that product, I'll buy it. <laughs> well Elvin thanks so much for your time today I'd recommend everybody pick up the book Be Less Zombie it's got loads of good stuff in there I've been using some of the ideas in it already and uh, I'm sure I'll be tapping you up for some help along the way Elvin so thanks again for your time yeah great thanks for having me on been a really nice chat so that was my interview with Elvin Turner I hope you enjoyed it we talked about a variety of different frameworks and referenced a few different books in that conversation I'm going to include links to some of them in the show notes, as well as, of course, a link to Elvin's book, Be Less Zombie. Now, in next week's episode, I'm going to be talking to Annie Auerbach. She is the author of Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life. So until then, please subscribe to this podcast. Also check out my newsletter, futureworklife.com. And I'll see you next week.